If uh, you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 34. Exodus 34. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be page 162, 162. This is part something of our Exodus series that we started back in January 2020. And uh, a lot has happened since then. Yes? Uh, I told the early service, um, when we started Exodus, hardly anybody had heard of COVID. Augie was five months old. Bryant was one month old, and Caroline was not born. So a lot has happened since then. Um, But we're going to conclude our journey through Exodus. I pray it's been fruitful for you. I think we've grown together through this. God has been kind in his providence um, for this book at just the right time. Next week, um, we're going to start a series called Kingdom Families. Uh, But for today, we're going to be in three places in the final chapters of Exodus, and I'll guide us through there. So we're going to have three points. Three texts. The first text is 34, 1 through 10, okay? 34, 1 through 10. So this is what we'll read first. It'll be behind me on the screen as well in my translation for you to follow along there. So let's go ahead and read this together. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 10. God's Word says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, so to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you." Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths in all of our hearts. In his excellent commentary on Exodus, Philip Ryken opens with this paragraph that I read when we began our journey some 21 months ago. Listen to what he said. He said, Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. The adventure takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadow of the Great Pyramids. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece. The baby in the basket, the burning bush, the river of blood, and the other plagues. The angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day, and pillar of fire by night the golden calf, and the glory in the tabernacle. Once heard, the story is never forgotten. For Jews, it is a story that defines their very existence, 
the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption. We return to the Exodus again and again, sensing that somehow it holds significance for the entire human race. It is the story that gives every captive the hope of freedom. Thus, it was only natural for African-American slaves, many of whom were Christians, to understand their captivity as a bondage in Egypt and to long for the day when they would be free at last. The Exodus shows that there is a God who saves, who delivers his people from bondage. And so it does. And my hope is that through our journey through Exodus that you have seen that it is not only an epic adventure full of twists and turns, but it is a picture of a loving and mighty God who saves people in desperate need of rescue. That you have seen that it is not merely a tale detached from us as Christians in 2021, but that it is our story. And it points to something even greater than itself. We ended last week, we saw Moses ask God to show him his glory. And we'll see the expression of that today, but I hope you have seen that the story of Exodus is truly about God's glory. And as I said 21 months ago, Exodus is not primarily about the Israelites, not about Pharaoh, nor even Moses, but that the main character and the main point of Exodus is God and his glory and his fame. And that's why we study Exodus, because Exodus teaches us more and more about God and what is more practical than knowing and worshiping your creator and rescuer. So in our time together, as I said, we'll have three points that come from three texts in the final chapter, chapters, and also correspond to three of the major themes that we've seen in the book of Exodus. So the first point is from 34, 1 through 10, and it's the revealing God, the revealing God. Last week, when we opened chapter 33, Israel, fresh off the golden calf incident and its fallout, received some mixed news, right? God tells Moses to let them know they will go to the promised land, they will be accompanied by an angel from the Lord, they will have their enemies vanquished for them, they are reminded that this is a plentiful land, but then God says what? I'm not going with you. Israel receives this the way they should have, as a disastrous word. And they respond by repenting of their sin and idolatry, and they show this by physically removing the ornaments or jewelry of Egypt that literally and metaphorically clung to them. Then Moses goes to God, he petitions God, and he says, in essence, if you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. And Moses says this because he gets it, right? He understands the whole point of Exodus is for God to have a people who he will dwell with as they bear his name to the nations, and if that doesn't happen, then there's no point in going. So God reverses his course and says that he will, in fact, go with Israel. And this is where we drop in today as God instructs Moses to cut new tablets out of stone on which God will once again write the Ten Commandments for the previous tablets. What happened to them? They were broken by Moses to symbolize that the people had broken the covenant with the Lord. So what's happening here in this first scene is neither a making of a new covenant nor is it a renewal of a covenant, it is a restoring of the covenant. And God is doing this through His grace and mercy because, understand, He is the wronged party, right? In this covenant, God is the wrong party. So technically, 
God has every right to walk away from the covenant because the other party broke their end. But instead, as the wrong party, God restores the covenant. Douglas Stewart says, this is not merely the sort of covenant renewal that would take place at various times in Israel's history. This was a divine restoration of a broken covenant, one that had been temporarily null and void by Israel's corporate return to idolatry. And so what happens is, in verses 12 through 26, which we didn't read, is a summary of the covenant stipulations, but they are given in reverse order from how they were given the first time. Why? Because now God gives the prohibition of idolatry first. And for good reason, right? Because it was idolatry that caused Israel to break the covenant in the first place. So Moses cuts these new tablets, and he heads up to Sinai, to meet with the Lord who descended on the cloud. Now, this is the answer to Moses' request from 33.18 when he asked to see God's glory, which we noted was a request for God to give him reassurance that everything that he said would come true and a request to know God more. So this is why in 34.6 that the Lord passed by Moses, okay? Moses is in the cleft of the rock. And as God passes by him, he sees what 3323 calls God's back. And what is it that God gives to Moses as reassurance? It's more knowledge of himself, right? In verse 5, he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. This is like when God revealed the name of Yahweh at the burning bush all the way back in Exodus 3. In that name is packed all sorts of descriptors of who God is and what he's like and thus what he does. Now, we're not like this now, but I think back a couple hundred years ago, people's names used to mean a lot more, right? Because they would tell a story. They would tell about who they were, where they're from, what their occupation was, what their family was like. Like if you go back in a few hundred years to Scotland, and you take my name, for example, my last name, Paxton. You'd know what part of Scotland my family hailed from, and you would know they were gardeners because that's literally what Paxton means. But that's clearly not the case now, right? I am not a gardener, and if I merely look at a plant, it will die. But there was a time when names meant a lot more than they do now. They told a story. God proclaiming the name of Yahweh here is followed by an exposition of that name, right? Packed into that name is all sorts of information because he gives a list of descriptors regarding his character and deeds. In 34, 6, and 7, these are among the most important verses in the Bible. So if you, if you write in your Bibles or scripture journal, you got to circle it, you got to put a box around it, you got to highlight it, you got to star it, okay? <coughs> because these verses reveal God's character, okay? And these descriptors, descriptors are repeatedly drawn off of throughout the Bible. So if you look at the weekend worship guide that we posted, and you look at the questions, there's a list of verses throughout the Old Testament where this is referred to, okay? Israel drew off of these two verses to understand who God was and what he's like. So God gives six descriptors of himself. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands of generations, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So let me, let's just run through these real quick, okay? He is compassionate or merciful, which is like, this word is like a gut level emotional reaction of sympathy or tender-hearted mercy. What I thought of when I read that was, I think of the king, do you remember the king in the parable, the unforgiving servant? When the servant asked for more time to pay off this enormous debt, it says that the king felt this gut level, literally mercy from the guts for this servant, which moved him to the action of forgiveness. That's what this compassion of God is. He's also gracious, which means something like responding favorably to someone's desire for help or mercy. This is something we've actually seen throughout Exodus, right? Because especially you think of chapter 2, where the people cried out to God because of their heavy burden, and we're told God heard their cry and he acted, or even in chapter 33 when the people repented through the removal of the ornaments, and Moses went to the Lord asking him to reverse the decision to not go with the people, and God responded, what? Favorably to the repentance and Moses' plea. He's slow to anger. He does not act rashly or out of frustration. Whereas we tend to, yes, if you're a parent, you've done this, lose our tempers quickly and easily, or fly off the handle or act impulsively, God is slow to anger. His initial reaction, his initial action even to an affront against him, is forbearance rather than retaliation. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, this word love, this is another word that you want to make note of. It's an important word. It means more than how we might view love as primarily a feeling or an emotion. This means God is abounding in covenant loyalty, and that loyalty is long-lasting. Says Stuart, However fickle and unreliable humans may be in their relationship with God, he's nothing of the sort, but can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to his promises for his people. Further, that he's abounding in faithfulness means that he abounds in truth, or that whatever he says is reliable and can be trusted. He maintains or keeps steadfast love to thousands of generations, which is meant to point us to his disposition is that of kindness to the undeserving. And that, you note that he says thousands or thousands of generations simply means his steadfast love and mercy is inexhaustible. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He forgives all manner of disobedience and indiscretion and rebellion. In other words, there is no sin beyond Yahweh's power to forgive. No matter what people have done, if they come to God in repentance, he will forgive their iniquity and receive them. And yet, verse 7 adds something, doesn't it? He does not indulge sin. That's something we we must also get. God's not giving us a blank check to sin because of his grace. The Bible holds in tension the fact that God is abounding in steadfast love, forgives the repentant of their sins, is long-suffering, yet he is also just. And he punishes those who refuse to repent and who do not give their allegiance to Him. Divine love and divine punishment must be held in balance. Many tend to swing the pendulum, yes, in one direction or the other, speaking mostly of judgment and rarely about mercy, or speaking exclusively about mercy and never or rarely about justice and judgment. 
But both are wrong. Even if they think they're diametrically opposed to one another, they're in reality two sides of the same gospel-less coin. Ross Blackburn said it well when he said of this passage, one tendency in some circles of the church is to underplay God's judgment and in others to underplay God's mercy. The call then is to seek to know God as He has made Himself known. Perhaps this sounds obvious, but the line between worshiping the Lord and idolatry is precisely here. Here. To the extent that we create a God in our image and after our likeness is the extent to which we follow another God. Talk of only judgment and no mercy is a self-righteous posture of thinking you could satisfy God through deeds. Something the Bible repeatedly shows us to be false. But talk of only mercy and no justice renders grace meaningless because what is it that you're being saved from? Unless we come to grips with the fact that we deserve judgment but are offered forgiveness, grace will never be amazing to us. After all, what does mercy mean if there's no presumption of justice and wrath? But the presence of God's justice, do you realize this, is good news? Because it means all the injustice that we see in the world, is there a lot of injustice in our world? Does not go unnoticed by God. And He will have the final word. Those who oppress and exploit, those who hold down and take advantage of the marginalized or vulnerable, while at times it seems like they are getting away with their sin, God reminds us here that He will, in fact, bring them to account. But perhaps the biggest reason why we need to hold in tension God's grace and mercy and compassion with His justice and judgment is because the cross of Christ is the ultimate expression of the two, isn't it? It is in the cross that we see the ultimate expression of God's justice and wrath and mercy and love all meeting together. As Jesus is executed, the justice of God stored up by sinners like you and me is poured out on His innocent shoulders, and it's through that act that we, undeserving sinners, receive unmeasurable mercy and grace. It's eternally important to see that, that we see fully who God is as He is revealed. Because what's human propensity? To take what we like about God, and then what? Leave out what we don't. We thus attempt to shape and fashion God in our image rather than seeing Him on His own terms as He makes Himself known in Scripture. Voltaire once said, God created man in His own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. More than ever, I think this impulse is present simply because we have more control over choices in every avenue of our life than ever before, right? And this consumeristic mindset can't help but spill over into churches and even in how we view God. It's like, <coughs> have you ever been to one of those Build-A-Bear stores at a mall? You know what I'm talking about? Essentially, children could go in, they customize a stuffed animal to their liking. They could pick which carcass they want, right? They could pick its voice, have its stuff, select its outfits and accessories and all that. They could pick and choose the parts they want, and they could ignore and bypass the parts they don't. And we must not attempt to do this with God. We must study, see, and dwell on who He actually is in His revealed Word. Here we should not read right, His self-descriptors here and take everything 
up until he says he will by no means clear the guilty. Nor should we zoom in on his promise of justice and minimize the fact that he is merciful, gracious, compassionate, and abounding in steadfast love. Consider this illustration from J.D. Greer. He said, can you imagine how offensive it must be to, to God when we attempt to reshape him according to our preferences? How would you like it if someone did that to you? He says, suppose a writer approached you and said, I've been watching you, and I'd really like to write your biography. I want other people to know how wonderful you are. But then their biography presents you as an astronaut with a string of failed relationships who lives alone with 18 cats, none of which is true. So you say to your biographer, uh, there's a problem. First, I'm scared of heights. I'm not that bad at relationships. And like all godly people, I prefer dogs, not cats. And they respond, but you're so much more interesting as the spurned cat-loving astronaut. People will only buy the book if you're like that. My guess is that you'd be offended. If we wouldn't like someone else doing that to us, why would we think it's okay to do that with God? Do we think that our idea of God is better than who he actually is? Have we forgotten who we're talking about? So like Moses, we must be diligent to desire to know God more than go to his word and shape our thoughts around God based on his self-revelation because he's far more glorious than anything we come up with on our own. But what will happen when you see God for who he is in his goodness and glory, you respond the way Moses responded in verse 8. You bow, you fall down, and you worship. And in just these actions, Moses is showing something profound, isn't he? By bowing, he is submitting himself to the Lord. He's indicating his unworthiness. He's drawing attention away from himself. This is the proper response to seeing God for who he is and for seeing his justice and mercy mingling together at the cross to set undeserving rebels free. It is to worship. And what happens in proper and true worship? What happens? Attention is driven away from the worshiper and where? Towards the one being worshipped as the worshiper submits and is overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God, which flows out to selfless, obedient actions for the kingdom. But did you notice also that adoration precedes supplication? In other words, you see that Moses worshipped and then he petitioned God, right? The order is not reversed. Once again, Moses' petition is not based on who Israel is, but in who God is as gracious and forgiving. Did you notice that after God's self-revelation to Moses, that Moses once again understands the gravity of the people's sin in verse 9? Did you notice that? More than ever, Moses sees Israel as a stiff-necked people and asks for God's pardon on their iniquity and their sin against him because once you see the holiness of God, you see the gravity of sin and the true enormity of the offense against him, which should then lead to what? Repentance, pleas for mercy, and once mercy is received, worship flows from a heart overwhelmed by the unmerited love of God. And what we see here in God making himself known is one of the major themes of Exodus, right? Through the plagues and the strikes against Egypt, God made himself known to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
Through the signs and wonders in the cloud and the pillar and the giving of the Ten Commandments, he made himself known to Israel. And now he commissions Israel to make him known to the nations. And we see another major theme of Exodus in our next text and our point number two. Flip over to, just jump down to verse 29 of chapter 34. Our point number two will be the greatness of God. The greatness of God. So God reveals more of himself to Moses. He has Moses write down the book of the covenant and Ten Commandments, and then Moses comes down off the mountain, and now look at 34, 29 through 35. It says, when Moses came down from the Mount, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses comes down, and his face is literally what? It's glowing, right? And he, he doesn't even like realize it. And this is such a great scene, I think, and it's not only because Moses comes down literally shining, it's because he comes down the mountain with this good news, right? Good news of God's reassurance and his restoring the covenant and making himself known with the promise of verse 10 to do wonders and awesome things for this undeserving people and plans to continue to build the tabernacle so that he could dwell with them. What an incredible thing, so close to the golden calf incident, right? But God is truly merciful and kind and abounding in steadfast love, isn't he? I mean, it's astounding. Like, we're two chapters removed from the golden calf. And Moses comes down, he glows because he's reflecting Yahweh's goodness and compassion that was revealed to him. And this is just further proof to Israel that the God they're covenanting with, the God whom they transgressed, the God who desires to dwell with them, is the greatest of all beings, who's so mighty, so glorious, that Moses' interaction with him, hid in the cleft of a rock, protected by God's hand, and not even seeing God fully, literally caused him to radiate because of that encounter. Like what pagan worshiper ever glowed in the history of the world after an encounter with their idol? What statue made by the worshiper made them glow after coming into contact with it? Did the people glow after worshiping the golden calf? Of course not. And the golden calf, so impotent that it was only fit to be crushed, consumed, and passed through their digestive system. Who is the greater God? Now, we could bring this around to idols in our day, can't we? And the the ones we are prone to give ourselves over to or the things that tend to displace God in our lives? You ever literally glow after looking at your bank account? Have you? 
You ever shine because people know your name? You ever glow because your spouse fulfills you? You ever shine because your kids succeed? You ever glow when you get likes on social media or spend hours on Netflix? You ever shine when you get the house or car or job or vacation or hobby you want? What's the answer to all that? You can say it. Of course you don't because they're false gods. They're good things we've made ultimate things and they fail to be glorious in the way we wish they would. This only maximizes the greatness of God because only he can make someone literally shine through a brief encounter with him. And the people were told were afraid to come near Moses. Would you be afraid too if some fella came off a mountain glowing like he just came out of like a nuclear reactor or something? One commentator said of this, this is great, he says, because the very glory that shone upon his face searched their hearts and consciences, being what they were, sinners and unable of themselves to meet even the smallest requirement of the covenant which had now been inaugurated, the glory which they thus beheld upon the face of Moses was the expression to them of the holiness of God. They were therefore afraid because they knew in their inmost soul that they could not stand before him, him from whose presence Moses had come. And this highlights the greatness and glory of God. But I think it's also analogous to what Israel was supposed to be and do in a further major theme of the book of Exodus. As they encounter the true God, as they learn more about his glory and splendor and character, they are to reflect his light to the nations. That's their role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're supposed to come into contact, as it were, with Yahweh in their midst and then turn around and brightly shine to the nations. And who else is supposed to do that? Go ahead. <laughs> we are to come close to God, learning of Him in the Scriptures and through discipleship and corporate worship, and then go and shine His light and reflect His glory to the community and to the nations we have been commissioned by Christ to behold his glory and then be the light of the world. We're not the light, but we are to reflect Christ who is the light through word and deed in our day-to-day -day lives. Let's illustrate it like this. Kent Hughes tells the story of a man who was traveling and he bought his wife a matchbox that would glow in the dark. After he gave it to her, she did what we would all do upon receiving that gift, we would turn the lights off, right, to see it glow. But she turned the lights off, and it didn't glow at all. And so they both thought, well, we would all think that they had been cheated until the wife noticed some French words were on the box, and she had a friend translate them. And the inscription on the box said, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. So the light had to charge it before it would shine at night. And so it is with us. The only way we shine is by exposing ourselves to the light of Christ. The more we do that, the more we do what we talked about in the first point, which is to seek to know more and devote ourselves to beholding our triune God and who he truly is according to his self-disclosure, the more we should be drawn to worship and then good works in light of his grace which are really just reflections of Christ's own light to a community and world in darkness. 
That's the task of the Christian. And that's the task of the church, to behold the glory of God and then shine as a city on a hill. Moses reflects the beauty of God because an encounter with so great a God had a changing, transformational effect on people. You can't, do you believe this? You can't encounter this God and remain the same. Do you believe that? I wonder, are you shining bright for Jesus in your life? Do you radiate? Like, is that a word you'd use? Do you radiate his love and compassion offering grace to others? If not, could it be because you aren't spending time beholding his glory and goodness through prayer and worship and studying his word? It is like Moses here, being with Jesus that we become more like him. Like, I'm very bad at math, but this math I could do. And the math is simple. The less time we spend with him, the less we will be prone to reflect his light. But the more time we spend with him, the more likely it is that we can't help but become more like him. There's a great scene in the book by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicle of Narnia series, Prince Caspian. Love this scene. The great lion Aslan, which you know he's, he's a type of Christ, shows up. And Lewis writes this, he says, And then, O oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. And as one of the main characters, Lucy, sees him, she goes running towards him. And the next thing she knew, she was kissing him and putting her arms around, as far around his neck as she could, and burying her face in his mane. And then she steps back, and she looks at Aslan, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older. And she says, not because you are. And Aslan replies, this is the money. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So it is with Jesus. The more we behold of him, the more we will grow. And the more we grow, the bigger Jesus will get in our eyes and our hearts and our affections which will spill out to every single part of our lives. Finally, the climax of the book and our third and final point, the tabernacling of God. Turn with me to chapter 40 and verses 33 through 38. If you're in Scripture Journal, this is page 196. Our third and final point, the tabernacling of God. Let's read this, starting in verse 33. And he erected the court, he, Moses, around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
So what we have in chapters 35 through the first part of 40 is the building of the tabernacle, okay? Much of which is a restatement of what we see in chapters 25 through 31. They almost mirror each other. Alec Moitier says this in regarding to this repetition. He says, Bible repetitions underline Bible priorities. Important things get said twice. In this case, it is the awesome reality encapsulated in the tabernacle that the Lord, the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Ruler of the world, the Sovereign God of grace and power actually intends to come and live among His people. It is not only a reality of indwelling, but also a reality of identification. While they were a people on the move, He too would live in a mobile home so that whether they stopped just for a night or for a longer period or whether they were on the march, the Lord Himself was at the center of their lives. So what Exodus anticipates, Ephesians 2 fulfills, and Revelation 21 through 22 describes its eternal consummation. So now Israel finally got to work on the tabernacle, and they finally got to build the abode of God on earth. They finally have done what we've anticipated this entire time. And the thing that was interrupted because of their sin, but retaken up because of God's mercy, and we're told in verse 33 that Moses finished the work. It's worth pointing out, I think, once more, that what the tabernacle was supposed to be was a microcosm of the created order and a sort of portable Sinai. We saw several weeks ago that the tabernacle was meant to be a new Eden of sorts, because when was the last time, I mean, look at chapter 40, God is dwelling with the people. When was the last time God did that? All the way back in Genesis 3, right? It's, it's, a, it's a new Eden of sorts here. And there are several verses where Moses intentionally, the writer of Exodus of Genesis, intentionally alludes to Genesis 1 and 2 to show this. There are several examples of this in chapters 39 and 40. Let me give you a couple. In Genesis 2.1, it says that the heavens and the earth were finished, and in 39.32, we're told the tabernacle was finished, using the same language. In Genesis 2.2, God finished the work. In Exodus 40.33, what we just read was to say, and Moses finished the work. In Genesis 2.3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Then in Exodus 39.43 and 49-10, through 10, Moses blessed the work and the tabernacle furniture was anointed with oil and it was made holy. We're meant to see God's plan to restore Eden progress forward through the work of Exodus. But it isn't the end, of course. But this book of the Bible, I hope you'll see and have seen that it's crucial. Exodus is crucial for understanding and appreciating the rest. Because this dwelling points to an even greater dwelling to come. 40, 34 through 38 tell us that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and when the cloud of the glory of the Lord would move, Israel would know it was time to follow. But they're in the midst of the people, in the sight of them all. Like, all they had to do was look out of their tent flap. They could see the presence of the Lord of all things. Isn't that amazing? Like, I mean, in chapter 32, it seemed like this would never happen. <laughs> like, everything had been undone. Like, God would never dwell with this stiff-necked and unclean people. But God made a way, didn't he? He showed that he is who he said he was in 34, 6, and 7. He is Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God has shown that over and over again in Exodus, hasn't he? I mean, we open Exodus in chapters 1 and 2, we see the people under a dark cloud, right? They're under the cloud of slavery and a heavy burden and of genocide. And then 40 chapters later, they're under a new and liberating cloud, the cloud of God's presence. How incredible. And all because of who God is. All that we've seen in Exodus is meant to fill you with awe and adoration that God would do this for this people. And all this is meant to point you, yes, to the promised land, yes, to the temple, yes, to the second temple, but to an even greater move than all of those put together. Because even as glorious and as wonderful as Exodus 40, 34 to 38 was, it was but a shadow of what was to come. And can you believe it? It's a shadow of what you could enjoy now and into eternity. See, this is not the end. It's pointing to more and greater. In fact, maybe we could say that the end of Exodus is simply the beginning. I think of uh, another book from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. This is the very last book of the Chronicle of Narnia series, and this is how the last paragraph ends. This is the last paragraph in the book. This is how the whole series ends. It says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was the only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Because as amazing as Exodus is with its highs and lows and its ups and downs and twists and turns, it's pointing to a more incredible tale of a conquering hero to come. Do you notice, in chapter 33, we're told the tent of the meeting, we talked about it last week, was outside the camp, right? And only Moses could approach it. But in 34 here, we're told that the tabernacle became the tent of meeting, but instead of being outside the camp, it moved to the midst of the people. The presence of the Lord moved from away from the people to among them. This beautifully pictures what would happen when God would move from distance to among us in an even more glorious way. Because in the fullness of time, this God, with his brilliance, with these attributes and characteristics who made the heavens of the earth, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And his light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he leads those who will repent and give their allegiance to him to a better, greater, truer exodus. And how? He came, he dwelt with us, he lived as the only perfect person in the history of the world, and then he offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb in your place. You just think about that? Like the God whose contact with Moses made him literally shine. Like the God who dwells in this tent at the end of chapter 40. The God who spoke and everything was created. Came and be and died. 
for you. In your place, condemned he stood, sealed your pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, and the Father vindicated him, and as he was resurrected bodily by the Holy Spirit, God accepted his atoning sacrifice so that you may live. And this tabernacling gave way to another tabernacling when he ascended because then he sent the Holy Spirit. And check this out. If you repent and give your allegiance to Christ, the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rushed to fill the tabernacle in chapter 40 can fill you too. You guys hearing this? Because I read... Exodus, and I wonder, what would it be like to just witness like a fraction of what Israel did? Like, how amazing would it be to see the strikes and the plagues, to see the sea part, walk on the dry land, see the sea come back together, see the cloud and the fire leading the way, and see the cloud up on the mountain, and to hear the audible voice of God giving the Ten Commandments, and to see this glory fill the tabernacle. Wouldn't that be amazing? But here's the kicker. Through Christ, you could have the Spirit of God with you in a way that surpasses anything we see in Exodus. Can't touch it. Thanks to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you can enjoy a better Exodus right now. Right now. And you could be a kingdom of priests. And you could be a holy nation. And you could behold the face of Christ. And you could traverse this world with the greatest of all hopes, knowing that one day you will dwell in the presence of the triune God in a better Eden. This, friends, is the message of Exodus. This is what it's all pointing to. And we are more privileged than even Moses, thanks to a truer and better Moses, the King of glory, the true Passover lamb, the embodiment and sender of the presence of God, the consummator of the end of the age, Jesus Christ. Now, we opened our series on Exodus more than 21 months ago. I used my introduction, the quote from Philip Ryken that I opened today. And so I think it's only fitting that I close with this brilliant paragraph that ends his commentary as well. And then we'll come to the Lord's table together. This is what he says. He says, as we walk this pilgrim way, we're waiting for an even greater glory to be revealed, the glory of Jesus Christ at the end of the ages. The Bible promises that one day Jesus will come again, and that when he does, he will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There will be no need for any tabernacle then, because Jesus will take us into the very presence of God in all his glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the message of Exodus as it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Once we were in bondage to sin, enslaved by its tyranny, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, God has delivered us from the Egypt of our sin. Now he is leading us through our earthly wilderness with all its difficulties and dangers. The great God of Exodus will never leave us or forsake us. In the church he has set up a sanctuary where even now we may enter his presence for worship. And one day soon, Jesus will come down in glory to take us up into the glory that will never end. Everyone who trusts in him will be saved for the glory of God.